appreciation to God our Savior who acted on our behalf when we were lost in our trespasses and sins through the blood of His Son and His Son who established this church. This place where true believers can come and who can fellowship with one another and who can worship that God in both spirit and truth. And we know those things. But this morning, uh, we are, th- those are going to be some things that are going to be implied in our studies. Because as you can tell from uh, your banner to your right, my, my left, uh, this month we are considering marriage. What an exalted marriage looks like. And specifically from uh, the Song of Songs, or what we might call more commonly the Song of Solomon. And I'll say that the one standing before you this morning freely admits that he feels somewhat inadequate speaking in great deal about this topic. Having been married for only a little over two years now, I, I understand that I'm speaking to some individuals who have been married much longer than I've been on this earth. Um, but those same individuals could probably tell you that only two years of marriage can, can teach you a whole lot as well. But even without that, I- any person who, who can read can look and see what uh, God's picture of marriage is by just getting into his word. Because this morning uh, we are discussing what God's ideal picture of, of marriage looks like. As, as David mentioned earlier, this morning we are looking at an ideal marriage. You will remember uh, marriage's origins. Where did, where did marriage begin? It began, of course, in the all-knowing and all-wise mind of Almighty God. But, but where do we see that first manifesting itself? Well, we see it in the garden. We see it in the first man and woman. Well, when God told Adam to name each of the animals that he had created, and God saw that, that none of those animals were a suitable companion for him, therefore he took action to create for him a suitable companion. Where Moses writes in, in Genesis 2, uh, 2, 21 through 24, and the Lord God caused Adam to fall, uh, or a great, great sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And uh, this is something that, that Jesus would often fall, fall back on in his teachings, particularly whenever he would address things like divorce. So, uh, but, but again, this is, was something that was in God's mind. He, he knew that none, none of those animals that he created would be a suitable companion for Adam. And when he created marriage, he had an image in his mind. He had an ideal picture of marriage, what, what it should look like when a man and a woman fall in love and enter into that relationship that he created and, and that he called holy. And many of the factors in an ideal marriage in God's eyes come out of the book of the Song of Solomon. If you haven't turned there already, I would encourage you to turn your Bibles to the Song of Solomon. And as we approach this book and as we think about this book, bring to the forefronts of your minds the things that Wayne mentioned a couple weeks back. About the fact that this is the, the Song of Songs. It is the greatest song. It is the only song of the 1,005 songs that Solomon wrote that are preserved for us to to read today. About the fact that this is a book about two real people. You know, people do the strangest things with the Song of Solomon. And I don't know why some people have such a hard time thinking that this book is truly about Solomon and this Shulamite woman. About a man and a woman, their their courtship, their marriage, uh, their, their problems and how they overcame some of their problems. And because this is a 
literal book about literal people, the book begins to become much more relatable to us. And from this literal book, we're going to look at a few factors, fundamental factors in an ideal marriage in the eyes of God. And obviously we know that, that we're not always going to uh, live up to all the things that we should do. We are imperfect people, therefore we're going to have imperfect marriages. But, but these are some things that, that we who are currently married and those who are, are looking to in the future um, can, can, can think about, can be mindful of, so that we can use this God-ordained relationship to please Him. And some of the things... Uh, will coincide with, with, with some of the things that, that Wayne did mention a couple, couple weeks ago. But if you know anything about the Song of Solomon, you know that the themes in the book are uh, heavily re- repeated. But four quick things that are included in an ideal marriage. Number one, an ideal marriage includes attraction. Includes attraction. Obviously, you might know that there are some things in this book... Um, I don't know if I'd go as far to say that it would be wrong to mention in a a mixed assembly, but I will say it would be wiser to save some of these things, the the things in this book for uh, a strictly older audience. But there's good reason for that. Again, we are dealing, we are are reading a story of a young couple who who fell in love, their their courtship and their married life. And according to scripture, um, a major part of marriage is the intimate side of it. You think about, about places like 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul writes to the Corinthian brethren telling the spouses there not to deprive one another. But if we're going to have effective marriages, there has to be an attraction between the two partners, between the two spouses. And obviously we have a picture of that in this book. For instance, look at uh, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This is the uh, Shulamite speaking here. And, and look what she says about herself. She says, I am dark but lovely. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem. Like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's, mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. So yes, she says that she is lovely, but look at what else she said. She says, I am dark. Do, do not look upon me because I am, I am dark. In many ancient cultures, it was a, a great honor to be pale or, or fair-skinned. It was a marker of social status or class. It showed others that, that you didn't have to get by by working in the sun all day. So it seems that this Shulamite wasn't someone like Solomon who would have grown up in a palace. She had to work in a vineyard. Perhaps she was on the, the lower end of the social class in ancient Israel. And as we know, there are still some unfair expectations put on women today as to what society thinks they should look like, what they would call beautiful. But, but that's her, her opinion of her appearance. Contrast this to what Solomon would say about her. He would call her fairest among women, chapter 1 and verse 8. He said to her, you are fair, my love, chapter 1, verse 15, chapter 4 and verse 1. He said, you are all fair, my love, and there is not a spot or there is not a blemish in you, chapter 4 and verse 7. And again, oh, my love, you are as beautiful as Tirzah, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners, chapter 6 and verse 4. So while she said that she was too dark and she didn't want him or anyone else looking upon her, he said, you are altogether beautiful and there is not a spot or there is not a blemish on you. It's a cliche, but it's true. To her spouse, she was the most beautiful woman in the world. 
And I'm highlighting Solomon's attraction to her despite her, her feeling of, of being deficient because this is a scenario that we know is, is all too common. Men can have the same feelings of deficiency, but, but husbands know all too well that this is more common in, in their wives. And as men, it's up to us to keep reinforcing the same things that, that Solomon is saying here, that to us, they are the most beautiful woman in the world. But, but she recipro- reciprocated the, these same kind of things as well. After uh, Solomon said, you are fair, my love, in chapter 1 and verse 15, she responds by saying, behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant, chapter 1 and verse 16. Uh, But you know, uh, many have put forth this message that looks don't matter and all that that is important is what's on the inside. And and there's obviously some truth in that statement, but it's not totally true. Looks do matter. Looks are uh, important. If you're not attracted to your partner, your, your spouse, then that makes everything in the relationship just that much more uh, difficult. So first, in an ideal marriage, there is attraction between the spouses. Number two, in an ideal marriage, there is uh, appreciation. There's appreciation. And, and this is very similar to attraction, but it is slightly different. And Wayne did touch on this a couple weeks ago uh, as well. But in an ideal marriage, the spouses verbally uh, express their appreciation for one another. They, they, they compliment each other. They comment on each other's uh, appearance. They, they tell each other what it is that they like about one another, uh, how exactly it is that they appreciate one another. Look at, at what, the, uh, what Solomon says about the Shulamite beginning in, in, in chapter 4. And again, this, this could be tied to the attraction that he felt to her, to her as well, but, but not all compliments are, are physically or, or sexually driven. And that's what I think we see beginning in, in chapter 4. He says, Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a a piece of pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built for an armory on which hang a thousand bucklers as shields for for mighty men. And and on he goes. But but you'll notice that he verbally compliments her. And some of them sound strange to us. Like her hair being like like a flock of goats. Like her neck being like the Tower of David. Uh, I should remind you that we are reading things that are written in in, in poetic language. but, But all of these are compliments. Solomon, of all people, was certainly not not a fool. He knew that these were things that that, uh, she needed to hear. Uh, He he knew how she worked. But but look also at what she said to him in chapter 5. Look at what the Shulamite now says uh, about Solomon beginning in chapter 5 and verse 10. She says, my beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. His head is like the finest gold. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and, and, and fitly set. His cheeks are like a bed of spices, banks of scented herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His hands are wrought of gold, set with beryl. His body is carved with ivory, inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble, set on bases of fine gold. His countenance is like Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. O daughters of Jerusalem. So the same kind of things that Solomon said about the Shulamite, she, she says the same kind of things about him, of course, putting it in a bit more masculine tone this time. Uh, and again, a lack of verbal um, appreciation is 
commonly something that affects, negatively affects women more than men. Not totally, though. Men do like compliments, even if they don't always express that, even if they don't always seem like they do. Uh, that they do. But, but what happens a lot of the time is, is couples get out of the honeymoon phase. And once that happens, then the complimenting each other stops there. That, that cannot happen. There has to be an open line of verbal appreciation. Compliments are something that are uh, to be found in an ideal uh, marriage. Number three this morning, an ideal marriage includes exclusivity. Includes exclusivity. You know, we in the Lord's Church, we, we talk a lot about indirect commands. We talk a lot about uh, God choosing something and excluding everything else whenever he chose that thing. The most prevalent in our minds, uh, perhaps being from places like Ephesians 5.19 or Colossians 3.16, um, where uh, Paul writes that, that God chose the heart as the instrument for which we are to worship him in song. And, and because he chose the heart and was, and was otherwise silent on the matter, that that means that things like mechanical instruments have no place in our worship. They're not authorized by the New, New Testament. But when we enter into a marriage, we are doing the same kind of thing. I heard one man word it this way. He said, whenever you say I do to one person, you are in essence saying I don't to every other person. You, you are choosing that person and that person only. You are including that person and excluding every other person. And that is, of course, something that, that we draw uh, from this book. There are three statements in the book made by the Shulamite um, Actually, two statements that are, one being repeated twice. But, but these statements have to do with an exclusive relationship and an ideal marriage. The first one was read in our hearing earlier, chapter 2 and verse 16. Chapter 2 and verse 16, where she says, My beloved is mine and I am his. He feeds his flock among the lilies. And look again at chapter 6 and verse 3. She flips it and says, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He again feeds his flock among the lilies. So again, she says it both ways. I, my beloved is mine, and I am his. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. What we see from that is a sense of ownership. And you know, that, that, that concept is not all too popular in some circles, a sense of ownership from, from spouse to spouse. There is a temptation to get so uh, individualistic that we forget that a marriage is supposed to be a team. A team where uh, both partners take ownership of each other to the exclusion of everyone else. Also look at chapter 7 and verse 10. Where again she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is towards me. Again, I am my beloved's, that, that, that's ownership. And his desire is towards me. Me and any other woman that he finds attractive? No. And, and we know that, that that will later be a problem in, in the life of Solomon that he'll have to deal with whenever women are going to turn his heart from, from the Lord. Uh, but for this book, his desire was only for his wife. How many marriages have been sh- uh, torn to shreds because one of them had, had wandering eyes? A spouse who, uh, who failed to keep their eyes fixed on their spouse, who went off and gave attention to, to those who uh, they originally vowed to exclude. Job would say in Job 31.1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? And when speaking about marriage, I would modify that to say this. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I or how then could I look at anyone other than my spouse? 
In fact, in the Proverbs, it would seem that uh, we might be seeing some regret on the part of Solomon as he looks back on his life. Because in Proverbs 5 and verse 18, where Solomon was giving instruction to his son, he said, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. You know, this book, the Song of Solomon, if you think about it, actually becomes a little bit of a sad story when you think about the fact that he would eventually go on to forsake the Shulamite and let foreign women turn his heart from the Lord. So it seems to me that Solomon in Proverbs 5 was, was writing regretfully to his son saying, Son, don't make the same mistakes that I did. Don't let, let, let other women turn your heart from the Lord. Dwell in and rejoice with the wife of your youth. So if it is that we start to have uh, wandering eyes in a marriage, and, and by the way, to tie the first two points into this one, not verbally showing your appreciation for your spouse and, and not expressing your attraction to them can often lead one of them to wrongfully uh, look for them in, in other places. But if, if we start to have wandering eyes in a marriage, remember the commitment that you made to your spouse. And more importantly, remember uh, the commitment that you made to God that you chose this person and excluded all others. Number four, and finally this morning, in an ideal marriage there is included love. Love. And I know what you might be thinking. Whenever I say that in an ideal marriage in God's eyes includes, includes love, many of you might be thinking, well, obviously. And I'll, I'll get into what I mean and more specifically in, in a minute. But first, let's just lay the plain facts out there that between these two, between Solomon and the Shulamite, there was real, genuine love between them. And I think this is most obvious towards the end of the book in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, where she, speaking to Solomon, says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death and jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. You know, if I found these words outside of inspired literature, I might say that this was pretty sappy. Uh, But you, you almost get a sense of unashamed love between these two. She was going to express her love for him uh, to the fullest and use all of the descriptions in her vocabulary to get that across. And while you probably won't catch me writing poetry anytime soon, this same kind of feeling needs to be present in a marriage. Love is the the, the foundation or, or the bedrock of all the other things that we've discussed this morning. But as we begin to conclude our studies this morning, I want to end by venturing outside of the Song of Solomon. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This being the uh, sort of practical part of the book of Ephesians. Paul laid out some, some doctrinal information about what God did through Christ. And now Paul is telling them and telling us what we ought to then do with that information. And Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 is about the home. Probably a familiar section, but uh, look at what Paul says beginning in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your own wives. 
Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own, own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are the members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, the wife is to submit to the husband as also Christ is the head of the church and the savior of the body. And as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be, uh, sub, uh, be uh, subject to their husbands. And, and husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And Paul would go on to bring uh, his discussions here back to where we, we began ours this morning. He would go back to uh, the garden scene and, and God establishing marriage in Adam and Eve. But, but do you see the pattern here? He's saying, spouse, do this just as Christ did the same thing. He's not using himself as an authority, even though he he could have, but he uses Christ as the example in our marriage. What does this tell us? It, It tells us this. It tells us that our marriage ought to reflect Christ's relationship to the church. Our marriage ought to reflect Christ's relationship to the church. We are talking about, uh, we, we often talk about being more Christ-like, being more like him. We want others to be able to look at us and say, I, I see Jesus in you. Or what about uh, someone being able to look at your marriage and say, I see Christ and what he did for the church in your marriage. And what did he do for her? He, he bought her. He purchased her all with his own blood. That tells me that he was willing to do anything for her. So you, you, you want a picture of love? You want a picture of love that, that, that ought to be found in a marriage? Love that will do anything for their spouse? Look no further than Christ and what he did for the church. And I know that uh, the, the things that uh, have, have been discussed this morning may not have been something that would lead one to respond to the invitation. But perhaps you have come this morning with a heart that was prepared for a response. Perhaps you need prayers and living up to God's ideal picture of marriage. Are you struggling in your walk as a Christian? Or do you have a desire to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized and added to the church which he loved so dearly and gave himself for her, paying with his own blood? If you have any need this morning, I ask that you come now while we stand and while we sing.